Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Momenta podcast series. And today we have with us Mark Fleury, who is uh, founder and ex-CEO of JBoss, uh, founder of the Freeside Fund. Mark is uh, an entrepreneur, uh, a technologist, and a thinker, and frankly, one of the most interesting people I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, in recent memory. We uh, we recently connected in, in New York in person after uh, speaking a few times, and uh, Mark is, um, well, I almost describe you as a, as a rena- as a rena- Renaissance man, because you're involved in so many different things. But, uh, but uh, you know, first, want to thank you for uh, for joining us. Thank you. Happy yeah, to we'll be here. we'll dive a bit into uh, into some of the things you're doing today. But would love to just get a, a bit of a uh, background. Could you share, you know, really what had you know what led you to to uh, into into technology, and then uh, after that, I would love to love to talk about uh, kind of your, your what where what your Best known for which is which is J Boss, but um, but before that, let's uh, let, let's dive a bit into you know some of the you know some of the shaping forces that really influenced your your development. Sure, I'm, uh, I was born in France, Franco Spaniard. Uh, lived in France and Spain. Did all my uh, studies in France and uh, came to the United States in the early '90s to uh, finish a PhD. Uh, in theoretical physics, I was working on in Paris and did my work at MIT and the research lab of electronics on X-ray lasers, da da da. And uh, what I remember from those days was uh, uh, crossing the Harvard Bridge, if you know that bridge between MIT and, and Back Bay. And and there were these these there was these two guys walking. One was a, a journalist interviewing. Uh, what I now know as Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. And he was so excited and the way they were talking as they were walking about the Internet. Um, you know, there I was deep in a, in a, in a physics lab. Uh, and, and all I knew uh, was they had energy and I, and I wanted to, to be there. Um, and so when I left uh, academia, I finished my Ph.D., uh, not a pretty one, but I finished it. And uh, then went to work for Sun Microsystems in the early Java days, because, you know, this internet thing was taken off and, and Java was going to be the programming language of the servers and whatnot. And the second strong force, uh, uh, I mentioned one, was just the energy of the guys doing the, the World Wide Web revolution in 93, 94. Uh, the second force was, again, an energy was the people in open source. And that was, that was the days of the Linux server and Apache server and and I could feel that energy, and, and again, I, I wanted to be a part of it. Um, so within Sun, I specialized in Java, Enterprise Java Beans, which was the standards for uh, commercial applications and middleware, and uh, started uh, JBoss as an open source group, and it grew, and after starts and fits, and, and uh, you know, a company that didn't work, and then a company that did work, I, I managed to publish in open source and attract very bright minds. And, and then JBoss was a, uh, was a revolution in, in middleware first and second in, in how we did business with, with open source. Um, so that adventure took seven years uh, out of Silicon Valley. We were in, in Atlanta, Georgia uh, from 99 to 2007 and then sold to Red Hat in 2006 now acquired by, by IBM, as you know, and a lot of the developers are still there and, and, and doing you know, great work. And, uh, and it's, it was a very positive, you know, it's a very positive memory. Um, after that, just to finish the con- personal context, I, once I sold the company, we moved to Spain with a family and I became a dad again and went back to physics, uh, physics research, which I conduct now in ontology of quantum mechanics. Um, and music, a lot of art, and uh, and uh, and live programming of electronic music and, and things like that. And more recently, because of open source, because of the financial world, which which I've studied during the crisis and interests me greatly, crypto was kind of a natural thing. 
got introduced to Bitcoin in 2011 uh, when I got in contact with the original Bitcoin team and they wanted, you know, my, my, my opinion on the open source approach of Bitcoin, etc. Um, and uh, didn't take it seriously at first, uh, but now, you know, as, as you know, I'm back in, 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 in that field. A lot of interesting developments, not necessarily about technology, mostly about finance, in my own opinion. Um, but yeah, that's 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 the arc of uh, 50 years in a nutshell. How, how did uh, the germ of the idea for for J Boss emerge? I mean, I think as that as you as you began the project, I mean that must have been at the the height of when there was all of the. Uh, excitement around uh, you know WebSphere and WebLogic and and the you know application servers were for uh, for a while. I mean application servers and middleware were one of the hottest categories in uh, in enterprise software. And would love and but Linux at that point was was still emerging from uh, being thought of as a you know this this odd project that had some really eccentric uh, philosophy behind it and would love to get kind of get your your thoughts about the, you know the origins of the uh, the, the what had inspired you to take the open source approach and 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 then how it how it evolved I mean what how, how did it become this you know enterprise ready software so when I was at Sun and and doing Java I was a Java evangelist working on on Corba, et cetera, uh, I really wanted to join their developer ranks. And uh, because I had a background in physics, not in programming, nobody would have me. So the teams at Java, at Sun were like, yeah, we like you, Flurry, but you're not a programmer. Uh, I tried to, you know, join uh, WebSphere and, and same story. So I said it. I remember vividly sitting in Silicon Valley in traffic at a red light and I go, screw it. I'm just going to do this in open source and do it myself. And at first, it wasn't obvious to do Java in open source. In fact, there was uh, resistance on both ends, meaning the people who were making money with Java did not see this open source thing with 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 glee. Uh, you know, it was a it was a destruction of of sales from the point of view of WebSphere or IBM, and and that lasted throughout. And by the same uh, the, the, the the same token was that the open source guys were all C and and Linux and this Java thing was enterprise software. So for a while, I kind of existed in a limbo. And I remember vividly a, a VC meeting at a meeting with uh, Sequoia Capital, one of the tier one VCs in Silicon Valley. And basically it was 98 and I was pitching the cloud. And to me, it was obvious that the cloud was going to become a thing and it did but you know i underestimated the the timeline and the vc looks at the business model and says it's not a bad business model this was doug leone who was god at the time it's not a bad business model a bad business plan it's a horrible business plan and you know there i was basically way too early with the right idea which became the cloud but it wasn't the right time and i remember the vc saying well, why don't you focus on competing with WebSphere? Just just sell the stuff, you know, as is to enterprises. And I was, no, oh, I want to host it, et cetera. And we were both right and both wrong. And on the both right, you know, in the end, what happened is I went out with this open source project trying to make a living with it and, and, and training came easy. And eventually the VC was right. I We started doing what WebSphere was doing uh, and the same sales approach, but with a radically cheaper product maintain and, and, and some ease of functionality that made it a darling of a lot of developers. So the way it developed was almost by, by and I don't want to say by accident because there was no accident, but it w really was exogenous, meaning the, the it was the outside that was telling us, this is how we're using your software. Why don't you stop dreaming what it can be in five years and just sell us this right now? And this at the time was training, was consulting, was support. Eventually it became a pure support maintenance house, meaning not a consulting house, but a pure product uh, play. But that evolved because the market demanded it. And, and by that time, you know, it's a great position to be in as an entrepreneur where the market is really telling you where you need to go next. And so it's when I, you know, because it's easy to imagine things in your head ahead of time and fail because you're ahead of phase compared to everyone. 
But once the vision and the market come together, then you, you have magic that can happen in terms of viral distribution and, and, and open source success. And certainly it's what, what happened uh, for us. So it was, it was a nonlinear path, as it usually it is. A mix of us imagining the future and then the market telling us, yeah, but we want to go there and us responding as we could and scaling. And we did a series A and very quickly, you know, we got basically taken out because it was it was growing too big and, and number one market share, et cetera. And so that's it. That's that that was you know, how that that happened. Yeah, it was it was pretty re remarkable. What were some of the initial challenges that you may have faced when? Uh, I mean, I guess given that the product developed organically, you didn't necessarily face some of the uh, the, the same issues that you know, develop and ship proprietary software companies face. But when you were trying to harness open source development and and the and you had a model that that was predicated. Around uh, adjacencies, rather than selling a product itself, you know, were there were there some challenges that you found initially in uh, in, in managing development cycles, in, uh, in ensuring that the um, you know, that the, you you were able to get the product out, uh, you know, when you when you wanted to or when you were hope, hoping to, and I and and I, I just I, I, the parenthesis or parenthetically, I can see how. Coming from a you know being a uh, you know a, coming from physics in a sense right arms you with with uh, um, with a vision that's not uh, laden down with preconceptions, but would love to get your you know kind of the contrast of of your experience with uh, the traditional way of doing things at the time. Well, so certainly the open source development model uh, was successful by the time we started operating. But what was new was really this mix of let's take an open source project and turn it into a company. Because before that, you had the Linux model that was really uh, co-opted by Red Hat and IBM and, and all those guys pushing Linux uh, on the server side. And it has come to pass. It now runs the Internet. Um, uh, Apache was all, you know, uh, big companies doing development, small companies doing development. Here we were really saying, well, <clears throat> we're going to make money from open source. And so it was a challenge because nobody, everybody was using it. Everybody wanted to pay. They just didn't know where to do it. So on the development front, uh, it wasn't really challenging. In fact, it was kind of easy because I never saw a resume, for example, and the only guy I ever fired personally, uh, in, develop, in the development ranks, was a proprietary developer, developer who wanted to come to open source and couldn't make the transition. For the most part, I, I hired 30, people, 30 guys that were all vetted personally before because we had worked on open source. So the development side of things uh, grew very quickly. The key on the product side was bringing a, a very early partner, Scott Stark, who was my co-founder in, in, the, in the later JBoss Inc., uh, and he took care of the product cycle and the releases and then, you know, the trainings and the support tagged on to that. And, and it became a more normal version kind of, of approach to software development, albeit with open source characteristics in the development. Namely, we would develop all over the world and meet twice a year and, and getting together all over the world was, was, was always a pleasure. Um, the other challenge, uh, which was also not really difficult, it was really adapting uh, the, the two models together, was on the business side. There we brought in expert people. I worked with uh, uh, Bob Bickle, who, who was a manager at, uh, at, at HP, he managed the software division, so he knew the business. And growing a sales and marketing arm um, uh, was, uh, was, was, you know, we, we knew how to do that, and that's what they set out to do. One of the things we pioneered and still remains in the literature was sort of the, 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 the marketing lead qualification. We had the interesting problem of being one of the uh, open source leaders, so a lot of traffic, millions of people on the website. How do you go from millions of clicks to 10,000 qualified you know, clicks? Oh, this company is looking at this, or they've read this many hours of our doc, and maybe they need help because they've been reading about clustering and... And, da -da -da -da, and and how we would generate the information from the website and, and 
pass that, funnel that to a to a multi-layered sales team that you know would qualify for the, the deal, so that by the end you were you would hit the senior salespeople. It was a fully qualified thing, and and we had very high closing rates compared to the rest of the industry, just because of the of the open source. Uh, buzz, uh, noise, and visibility that we had to transform into a more classic sales channel. So some organizational channel uh, challenges because of the open source, but that worked well in terms of people are usually self-starters, and and I never saw a resume, and it was still world-class development. Mm-hmm. Um, some business model challenges, like like I just outlined, this professional open source. By the way, funny story, it spells P-O-S, which means something else in English. <laughs> and nobody ever told me, you know, and everybody was laughing for five years. And I realized once I sold the company, you know, that, oh, my God, I've been running with this acronym for the longest time. Um, but, yeah, the, the innovation was and challenge was around the business model, getting open source accepted by companies. And, uh, and now it's, you know, it's part of the background. I mean, everybody does open source. Yeah. It's not even a, a thing, you know. I mean, it is a thing, but but it's not it's not it's not controversial anymore. It's the way things are done, basically. Um, so yeah, yeah. What was the role that uh, that community management uh, played in in advancing the the product? Right. I mean, as as uh, you know, certainly with an open source development model allows a, you know a a project to to draw from so many different uh, different sources, but you, you you need to maintain the the trust and the interest of the community. Was that um, how, how did that play a, a role in the in the work that you were doing with with well, the core one team? One of the misconceptions of open source is that people are going to start working on your project because you put it out there. Mm. It's just not the case. Uh, all projects always have a very active core. And around it, you you have a myriad of people, consultants, you know, developers, independents, big companies, blah blah blah. And so the role of the community leader, which in our case was a company, um, is to really set the agenda, set the tone, set the roadmaps, provide the bulk of the effort. You know, it can be 80, 90 percent in the beginning, and even in the end, it's probably close to 40, 50 percent. You know, led by 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 a big a contributor, even in very successful projects, certainly in very successful projects, because otherwise, you're, you're, nobody contributes. So it's really more. There is a magic to getting the group going. There is there is certain dynamics that are difficult to to incubate or or create uh, uh, willfully. But once they kick in, the characteristic of open source developments, the finance of open source developments are very interesting. Uh, the financials um, and. Uh, and so there was a lot of community managers and thinking about uh, War George was on our mailing list and he became one of the biggest contributors. Scott Stark was, was animating a lot. I was a lot in community management as well in community communication. Um, and those challenges, um, you know, in terms of who manages the roadmap, it's not chaos. It's just actually people vet who comes into the tree the CVS tree, the repository, the GitHubs, etc. Um, so it's it's managed chaos in a way. But if if once once that thing you know starts cooking, then it's really a different dish than proprietary development because you deploy uh, with less barriers and 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 the code uh, gets through the developers, etc. So it's a it's a good business model once it's functioning. No, that's that's great. Um, uh, you know, I'd like to I'd like to move on to uh, sm- your interest in smart cities and really what was you know what has been your interest and what what has attracted you to the uh, really to the to the business problems and opportunities that are uh, you know that are that that fall under this broad umbrella we call smart cities. Right, it is a broad umbrella. I come from the from the background of IoT under that umbrella. Um, once I sold JBoss, I took a couple years off and played video games. And uh, two years after, first thing I did is I started an open source project called Open Remote uh, that at the time dealt with uh, uh, automation, home automation. Uh, we did some work, a lot of work actually, out of Philips Research in um, in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. The mothership of Philips, basically, and we were incubated in the uh, open remote, was incubated in the Philips labs, 
And uh, it's now a full-fledged open-source project, and it's a successful one. And we've been selected by the EU Commission as an IoT platform for uh, for EU projects. There's a lot of smart city in the EU. We have ten smart city projects from big cities uh, or big projects. For example, open remote powers, uh, Schiphol Airport, military passport control. So it's Ministry of Defense project. We, we provide integration and some software. Uh, to small cities, 50,000 people, you know, that want to revamp their lighting and their security and their cameras, and, and, and they don't quite know how to go about it. So for the past 10 years, basically, Open Remote has evolved from home automation, which is difficult and really a niche market for rich people, uh, to smart city infrastructure, which I find personally a lot more interesting because we're dealing with sewers and, and medical applications and, and whatnot. And that's very real and infrastructure and a little more discreet than what people understand as, as IoT buzz. Um, the second characteristic that I find interesting, even if a bit difficult, is that even though there's many products, it's not to me. It is not necessarily a uh, the smart city IoT or connected world is not necessarily a product play. What I mean by that is you have ten thousand products in the field already, and, and new ones coming. And it's difficult, given the amount of products in the market, to kind of make a niche for yourself, unless you come with some genius design, like say, like Nest had done with a UX. That's really cool for thermostat, et cetera. By and large, in the industrial world, it's a very anonymous world from the product standpoint. Any city project we get involved with, and we have about 10 in Europe, you know, we deal with what's existing. We're not recommending products per se, even though we will. Uh, usually we come in and there's already a vendor for the lights and there's already a vendor for the automated park meters and there's already a vendor for the cameras. And it's mostly a problem of middleware protocol integration, which was very close to our JBoss background, uh, and then UX and use cases. But lately, just to 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 wrap the intro on, on that, it's it's you know what what do smart city needs? They need the products for sure, but we don't have a shortage of shortage of products. We have a shortage of savoir-faire of how do you accompany a smart city uh, through the process of deploying. Uh, 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 studies to assess what hardware needs we have so so we can know the, the capital requirements because, as you know, smart cities are usually in later stages very capital intensive. Um, and, 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 and how you go through the process of becoming a smart city or a green city is, is usually what we find as the demand, uh, that and financing. It's mostly cry for help that we see now from the smart cities that, that say, we have these products, we don't want to select between 10,000 products, we have too many vendors, can, can you please integrate, give us UXs we can use, how do we finance it, et cetera, et cetera, and that's where crypto comes in. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting lead in, and and uh, um, I, I'd like to come back to the you know some of the challenges around smart cities. But how do you see a crypto as uh, you know playing a role in in advancing uh, the financing for for projects? About a year ago, uh, as Open Remote and as the Freeside Hedge Fund, uh, we answered an RFP coming out of Atlanta. Uh, for about $350 million uh, worth of equipment and whatnot. And it was an interesting RFP in the sense that they said, we don't know what we want, we don't have money, you need to finance it, and, and, and it needs to make money for us. And at the time, nobody wanted to touch it. I, I talked to a lot of infrastructure players that said, it's too fuzzy for us. It's, they, they're looking for a financial partner, but they don't know what they want. And it's a cry for help that we recognized from Europe. It's always the same story. It's always the same story. It's, we don't know, help us navigate. We want to be a cool city. We heard their savings, their potential money. How do we do it? So it's, it's, it's uh, the, the savoir-faire part doesn't have to do with the crypto. The second point of it is on the crypto front. Uh, and, and just, you know, 20 seconds, because this is not a crypto-focused talk, but there's really two proof points in crypto that I think are historically valid. There's a lot of noise for sure, because we call it money and everybody loses their minds. But 
the first killer app is uh, a store of value function, Bitcoin, meaning it has no intrinsic value. It's a database record, but we all assign it psychologically a value, like gold. And so it becomes a store of value, like gold. In fact, traded and regulated like gold, at least in the like gold, at least in the United States. The second killer app of of uh, crypto has been Ethereum and the smart contracts, which have enabled several things in the fund formation approach. Um, it was revolutionary because number one, the limited partners in the fund were now immediately liquid. And that's a trend we still see going, the tokenization of funds, uh, whereby even though uh, you're investing in a, what usually would be in a private placement memorandum with lockups, with the presence of a crypto layer, you become liquid in the markets, and that is very attractive to me. Uh, the second thing is once you mix uh, 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 the store of value with the equity representation, as has been proven by Bitcoin, and, and Ethereum, then you have a funding mechanism. In the past, we've seen this fund formation mechanism explode. You can think of it as crowdfunding, the future of crowdfunding, if you uh, even though I find that limited. Um, uh, what happened with the ICO phenomenon was a crowd formation like we'd never seen before. I mean, I think we reached $15 billion wiping out usual seed stage uh, VC funding out of nothing because there was nothing backing up 93% of the ICOs and they've died since then. And if even in the crypto world, you know, I find it always interesting. And we had this conversation when we met in New York uh, last time, Ed, is like, it's, it's the fact that most people now in the bear market of crypto have completely bashed ICOs, say, well, there were scams and there was nothing behind it. And it's easy to have that negative read, and, and certainly it's, it's very valid. I mean, it has crashed. But let's not forget that for a while, almost two years, we had unprecedented levels of capital formation for all kinds of crazy ideas. Here, we could go and say, okay, what is the real pain point of smart city? Methodology, I mentioned, but that's soft, I mean, soft, soft core. And then financing. How do we finance it? And so right now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing hedge fund ideas on how to leverage any investment so we can go with crypto store value vehicles that would enable us to co-deploy with cities, co-invest with cities, but with a crypto treasury. And sort of applying these fund formation characteristics that are extremely advantageous to uh, limited partners uh, uh, as well as the target cities, because we'll say, look, we can come and finance probably 60% of the project with maybe another fiat partner. And then we could offer follow-on token offerings for, for the city. Now, all of, of what I've described by way of, of wrapping up that bit and, and opening another Pandora's box is all that I've described is financial. This is about the financial characteristic of those coins, those store of values, and applying them to the financing of smart city, which normally falls a little bit outside of the normal banking system. There's a lot of financing specifically with 5G, but there's a lot of room for improvement. And when you talk to specialists, when I talk to your Momenta partners, the feedback on open remote was, okay, you guys are indeed targeting uh, 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 the main pain point of smart city deployments today, which is the financing. It is not about the tech. You know, you can talk about IOTA, which is the blockchain for IoT, and, and that's about the tech. And why would we put all the data of the sensors on the blockchain? There's very little use case for the technical use of blockchain per se, of the open source ledger. But there's tons of applications, in my opinion, that's where I spend time on. Uh, on the financing of smart city, which is, as you know, the, one of the biggest pain points of the industry. Well, th this is such an interesting point that you brought up, Mark, because when we were talking about this, I, I think that the you know the ability to offer, say, a 
uh, crowdfunding solution, or you know, what would it actually be a, uh, I believe, a, you know, Rule 144 offering? Because at least if you're talking about states in the United States, there are uh, <coughs> exceptions to the SEC filing requirements if you're invest in if you are targeting investors that reside within a single state but below certain thresholds of uh, of in- investing, and you're able to uh, solicit investment from investors that don't necessarily meet the accredited investor criteria. And this is what I thought was so interesting when when we were talking about this earlier. I mean, how do you, uh, I mean, leaving aside some of the challenge, the regulatory challenges uh, of today uh, aside, you know, how how would you see, uh, you know, a, a crypto funded or crypto crowd funded smart city project unfolding uh, in the future, say hypothetically, how, how, what what kind of role could, could crypto play to, to you know to, to to open up some of you know uh, some op- some opportunities for funding that that couldn't be done otherwise? Well, so uh, again, the, the 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 main function that is interesting for us is the store of value function of the crypto because that is an inherent leverage and it gets exceedingly technical, almost hedge fund talk, but. It's a way to, to leverage asset, meaning you give me $1, I can create 12 of crypto. Uh, and what do I do with those 12? I put it in the 147A exception, actually. It's, 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 it's not 144, it's, uh, it's 147A. Um, we can do a Reg D for accredited investors. We probably would shun U.S. investors, although we'll target them because you have to if you want to do it seriously. But, you know, start with a Reg S, meaning... Uh, 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 international investors that want to be exposed to the smart city category because it's a proxy for real estate and infrastructure in the United States, meaning one of the most attractive uh, asset asset classes in the world. Um, And so the, you know, the exposing the, 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 uh, having crypto uh, uh, leverage 12 to 1 allows us to take Reg D, Reg S accredited investors where the little guy, like you just said, is not invited. But what do we do? We leverage it via crypto. And what do we do with that crypto? Unlike the other crypto that was released without any backing, we say, look, this crypto is going to be released into the wild if and only when and only when we have an actual smart city project. And for that smart city project, we would probably bring our own treasury to bear, just like project financing houses do today. But we would also invite the local participant via the 147A exemption uh, to participate. And by the way, not only do do we not need them to be accredited, but they're also immediately liquid. And that's extremely interesting because from the regulatory standpoint, now you have a fully liquid instrument uh, that you have to that you can put on an exchange, provided you make sure that it remains intrastate and things like that, which is what we do with the securities token and the whitelisting now, as you know. Uh, but and 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 this is closer to to a discussion we we had prior, but it, it is close to the airdrop mechanisms of. Uh, pure crypto plays, whereby you kind of need to get your tokens in as many hands as you can if you want to create true market liquidity. So at the end of the day, as a hedge fund, right now I'm focusing on two things. One, fund formation, where I can leverage probably 10x as a hedge fund uh, uh, what's coming in. So from, a, from an LP standpoint, it's a very leveraged play. Uh, almost would have characteristics close to its treasury so we're far from an equity play in a startup here, yeah? We're, we're purely in the hedge fund, hedge fund leverage realm. Um, and then offer airdrops everywhere per projects once the projects become more concrete so that you have a legal airdrop with an asset back mechanism that comes back into the token. So just to wrap all of that up, the focus on my end right now is on the exchanges. I've invested in a bunch of exchanges in the market, you know, you have the, your Coinbase's, you have your Binance, your Binance, you have your Krakens. But really, we need new exchanges that bring these hybrid products to market in a more controlled way so that the investors know what they're buying. It probably won't be as regulated as an IPO, but, you know, not as wild as an ICO, 
uh, so to speak. But somewhere in between, I think crypto, the financial fund formation aspects of crypto can be applied um, uh, uh, to that problem. And right now, I know I, I talked to, 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 to you when I was uh, uh, approaching it from the point of view of open remote and in equity in a company, but really I'm thinking now it's a pure financial structure existing in a foundation that operates as a hedge fund. No, that makes uh, that makes sense, and I think that's in many respects. I think a lot of uh, you know people that have been focused on smart cities to date have been uh, you know really addressing some of the the big technical challenges and organizational challenges, right? Because you you need to orchestrate multiple interests and multiple types of decision makers with different pri priorities to integrate uh, operational and uh, uh, you know, proprietary information systems together to, to solve problems. But I think that the, the point that you make that the uh, that there really needs to be a, a creative approach to funding is it really gets to the, the, the huge you know the huge pain point in uh, in the space. I'd love to get your thoughts on on you know some of the uh, any interesting topics that that may have emerged as as you were you were just in New York at the Smart Cities Conference and uh, had a chance to really compare and contrast some of the uh, some of the thinking that was going on in uh, crypto. I think when I saw you, I was at. I was at uh, Consensus, and you'd just done a day at Smart Cities, but you were at um, uh, you'd been at a uh, what was an Ethereal Summit before. I would love to get your uh, just you know how how, how would you uh, assess the you know the, the the state of the market as as far as you know blockchain technology and expectations today versus a year ago, uh, and then compare and contrast that with what you're seeing in the discussions that are, you know, that are in the smart cities communities. Well, it, it, from the crypto front, I was at Ethereal, I went to Fluidity, et cetera. Um, you know, what's going on is, is very interesting. There may be a rebirth of crypto very soon. Um, I think it's coming back. The, the ICO fund formation mechanisms in a different form, you know, with, with more legal, more transparent, but uh, it will come back once it's applied to things that have real value as opposed to just another ICO tech. Whereas there's a lot of tech in blockchain, my personal focus is really on the applications on the, on the financial front. And I don't get that vibe from the crypto world, you know, and I get, I don't want to get flack for it. And Certainly as a technologist, as, as an open source pioneer, I'd rather take the credit than be a naysayer. But to me, crypto is not about the tech. Uh, in fact, you know, it's been 10 years of the tech. Once you have 10 years, it's done. Uh, you either have something to say, you don't. And, and why is it still going? Why is Bitcoin in synthesis? Because it's, it is not about the tech. It is about the tech, of course. It's about blockchain. But the big picture to me is financial right now. There's other applications, even philosophical, of open source ledgers, you know, such as the ID identity should exist there, medical records should exist there. But in the short term, um, you know, a lot of people think blockchain is about is about the tech when I try to apply it as a financial tool to technical problems such as smart city. And so I also went to the smart city conference and I found it a lot more focused. Um, than what you can see in the crypto world where there's a little bit still of blue sky thinking, you know? It's all going to be unicorns and peace and love and it's going to be great. And, you know, this is not 2017 anymore. And some people still want to leave that and we're going back to mooning and all that. I think it's certainly going back. But it's going back with, with applications from the real, real world, not just blind speculations on, on, on ICO scans. But ICO Smart City, I want to see that live. There's other projects. I mean, even in science, I, I work on some, some, some projects there with funding. But on, on the Smart City front, I found the conference actually very focused. They were, you know, everybody's in 5G right now, and you can go down the rabbit hole of 5G financing. You're absolutely right that it, there is a methodology problem, getting the partners to talk, et cetera, who's leading. Usually it's got to be consortiums. I think everybody's tired of hearing uh, product pitches or platform pitches. You know, there's, there's 30 platforms out there. Who cares? Um, it, it's, it's not a product problem. In fact, I think people who are pursuing products are, 
are finding it very hard because you have to spend so much money to to stand out of 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 the the tsunami of little products that you know why your sensor why this sensor why not the other no it's not that's not what's important right now to your point is getting all the parties together what are they doing what's the methodology what are the stakeholders how do you get them to align and one thing i haven't talked about because it's that's still more in the books for me it would happen in deployment stage is that crypto also in 2017 showed that it has something to say to gamification of economic communities what i mean is how do you represent the stakes of every stakeholder in in a endeavor well you can do equity but that's a very rigid monolithic construct well here's some equity for you here's some equity for you and the developers get some and investors get some but the token approach is a much more fluid and liquid in the sense of market liquidity uh, instrument rather than private equity that is illiquid mostly um, and so how you know i think crypto even has something to say to establishing incentives on a per city basis let's say that a city wants to reward you taking the bus or wants to reward you carpooling or wants to reward you using e-scooters whatever the case may be we can represent those game those rules in a game with crypto so you get paid in crypto according to your collaboration and this to each according to their to their capacity in the Karl Marx sense not to plagiarize Karl is 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 a notion that these do again how do you you know reward uh, everybody for their participation in a community that is most loosely connected and certainly we pioneered many ideas in open source as you asked and we discussed previously you know how do you reward open source developers was certainly the core of my thinking 15 years ago when I did JBoss. And I wish I had something like tokens. Had we had Bitcoin, you know, in 2000, I would have done it with a token. That's, that's the answer. Uh, a very fluid approach to incentivizing stakeholders and making sure everybody's aligned in almost in a game theoretical uh, way. You know, crypto is more about psychology, game theory, uh, and 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 financial applications, namely store of value and fund formation, as I hammer today. Um, but but they're they're very obvious. Um, they're kind of hiding in plain sight. And just to to finalize this long rant and 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 repeat the answer to your question, I think the Bitcoin crowd or the crypto crowd is either lost in the parties, which is great, you know, because they're great parties, and New York was certainly up there. Uh, or still thinking it's about Silicon Valley, and it is, but it's not. It, it's more about you know a city of two hundred thousand people somewhere in the Midwest that wants to do this infrastructure, and can we float their offerings? Mm -hmm. um, and and that I find very exciting, and that's the future of of a lot of things here. And I think the folks in smart city are almost there. I, I started talking about crypto a little bit, and the specialists were already on that wavelength. No, yeah, 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 we get it. We, we, we know, we know, you know, how do we do it? Who does it? And then the who does it is very important. I think as a hedge fund, we can uh, uh, create the perception, at least at first, and then the reality in implementation that we would not control, but steer and, and guide this process, which is always a consortium process. City by city, it's a consortium process. Right. A city will put out an RFP and they already have their lights and their vendors for the street lights and their vendors for the security and their vendors for the, the park meters and their vendors for the sewers. And you have to deal with that consortia and make sure everybody's happy and you need somebody neutral on the product front. And you need and really, if you read the RFPs right now, they want, as you said, two things. They want, how do you get everybody around the table? That's the process, that's the methodology, and there's ways to go about that. And number two, who's the financial partner? Who's gonna, who's gonna make sure that these funds are well invested mm -hmm. by the cities? You know, because cities can have dodgy reputations in the US. That's also something that yeah. scares potential investors a lot. No question. No but question. smart city is very advanced, and I think ripe for that formation revolution via crypto. And as you know, that's where I, I spend a lot of time.
Yeah, that's that's great perspective, Mark. I I, I think you really, you know, outlined what is special and what's different about these these uh, you know, these streams of thought, these trains of thought that I think these that some of the new technologies are enabling. But but you outlined it beautifully. I'd like to switch course a bit and and ask a bit about your uh, some of your other interests and you know how physics and and music fit into the you know the this the, you know these interests that you have in in finance tech and uh and 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 crypto which are you know are, are very uh would be seemingly very different on the surface but uh talk a little bit about you know some of the work that you're doing in in these other parts of your life sure this is where we we go magic um Basically, it's all one big unified thing I call the Church of Space. And the Church of Space is a lot of physics, a lot of arts. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a theater troupe. It's a electronic music act. Uh, I have live called Poems Electronique um, uh, and Church Space. And we have a residency at Moogfest and whatnot. I just come back from Paris, um, from Institut Langevin, where we conduct analog experiments on walkers and we study quantum mechanics and try to understand quantum mechanics. The unifying thread uh, in the Church of Space is this ontology of reality, meaning the ingredients that go into our physical reality, which in this case is an ether. The ether of the 19th century philosophers, which disappeared when Einstein introduced special relativity and the invariance of the speed of light axiomatically into our systems, uh, we couldn't reconcile it with a luminoferous ether, which was the dominant mind model all natural philosophers used, and all shamans and magicians. And the magical tradition has survived in music. And in music, I encountered acoustics and the study of pressure. And, and that ether is, is manifest as above, so below, is, is another precept of hermeticism. And it sounds, I don't, it doesn't sound corny because it's, it's actually, we, we publish uh, uh, academic research, uh, both in music and, 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 and physics. I collaborate here with Professor Gerber in the music department of Georgia State. What informs the two is this, these fields, these resonances uh, of the fields, the acoustics of a cavity, the acoustics of a room, the particular frequencies that work in a particular room. And both in physics and in music, I find inspiration in both. Uh, from music, for example, I've studied um, the beating effects in the bukla instruments, which arises when you shift a frequency by a little bit. Let's say you have a signal at 200 hertz, and you shift a frequency to 202 hertz, and you sum it together. And when you sum two cosines that differ a little bit by an epsilon, you factorize, so you have a beating effect at the factor of the difference, the two hertz in this case. So you have a very slow boom, 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 in the middle of otherwise 200 hertz noise. And those structures actually appear in physics, verbatim, I mean exact, as above, so below, as the bridge between Compton wavelength, which uh, uh, if you know is, a, is the intrinsic uh, oscillation of the of matter of the electrons in this case, to the De Broglie wavelength, uh, which appears in quantum mechanics and we observe in diffraction. So they're 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 very disparate in the surface. They're very different modes of expression. One is definitely left brain. The other one is definitely right brain. And I know you love your instruments and your jazz playing, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, mixing this intuition with a very strict, rigorous framework in which to express the ideas, but letting the mind wander through senses and exploration and chaos and is, is a very rich approach to what can otherwise be a dead end, an intellectual dead end. And mm. I certainly have found a lot of pleasure in, uh, uh, mixing the two. And just to wrap up and, and wrap crypto in, the Church of Space really became a, a philosophical house. Uh, I fund research, um, I finance experiences. Uh, I work on propulsion. That's what we do at, at De Langevin in Paris. You know, beyond Elon, how do we move without burning dinosaurs, etc.? Well, there is a force. There is Star Wars. It is true. We can serve the waves of space. 
We just don't have the tech, barely the physics, but that was what we're working. So it's a philosophical program. But you arrive very quickly at, at well, look, uh, the, the sun's going to blow up in four billion years. Therefore, either we leave the planet, which we don't. This is about planet Earth and Edis and smart cities and green planet. And, and then we take care of Earth. And then technology and the progress of technology is what ensures the survival of the species in fine. So wow. within Church of Space, there is a whole philosophical program that's a survival technology. And crypto plays a central role in this. And without the fund formation financial aspects, which is what I, I, I harp on in the immediate future, uh, uh, you know, as I know you do, I think there's a lot of interesting philosophical aspects on the social front to crypto. I think open source ledgers will one day command the records of identity, a passport, you know, biometric, what we call UBI, the, the universal biometric information. We'll cover voting records. We'll cover medical records. It's, it's insane that the medical records in the United States are the property of a private monopoly, namely uh, uh, Epic Software. You know, and their heart is in the right place, and they invoke Harry Potter on campus, and they're magicians, and it's all good, but it's a private monopoly, for God's sakes. In Europe, it's the property of the government. Philosophically, you can argue with Richard Stallman and the FSF that your data is your data. And it belongs to you. And how are you going to store it, making sure it belongs to you? An open source ledger fits the bill. So in my mind, I have no doubt that in 100 years, you know, probably five to six data categories, including those that I've mentioned and a few others, will live in open source ledgers. How we get there, I don't know. I'm not super interested in it now because I don't want to repeat the mistake of JBoss of inventing the cloud 15 years too early, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not going anywhere because I'm 15 years too early. But I know it will happen. And so to me, this is, you know, uh, uh, FSF, the fund, is sort of the financial arm of the church space, where the church space is focused first on music, excuse me, on physics, and then on the music expression of, of, of these ideas and that psychology. Uh, but it's one cohesive <laughs> uh, group of, of four focuses, even if it's just in my mind. You know, I, it's, it's very coherent to me. It's sort of a individuation to, to speak yeah. Jungian philosophy. It does make uh, it. It does make sense, and I, I think if we were to dive down into that, we could uh, we could spend uh, many rich hours exploring the the implications. Uh, it's it really it's 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 fascinating, and I'm I'm, I'm it's it love love hearing you uh, you know share share your share your vision and 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 philosophy there. Um, but uh, but we're within the limits of a of a podcast. I I, I want to just move on to uh, just. Just cover a couple couple more things about you. One is uh, just to get a sense of what you're most optimistic about, and you know what you know what your key worries are. As, as you know, as, as we think about um, sort of back toward technology and away from uh, you know without getting too too existential. You know, what you know what what really gives you a lot of hope in the uh, you know let's say in the over, over the next decade or so, and uh, you know some some concerns that you have. Well. It's funny that we're reaching the age of abundance that Karl Marx used to like, uh, used to call uh, 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 third stage abundance, meaning the, the machines do all the work, the AIs do all the work. And it's always interesting to me to hear leading thinkers, you know, uh, be it Elon or, or, or Bezos, kind of have a very, and rightfully so, uh, a very dark reading on what's going on. Certainly, we're reaching the very interesting paradox of the tools of capitalism have created this abundance worldwide. And because we're still stuck in the work for pay, work to eat mentality of, of this is not per se capitalism, you know, it's just the modern world where you have to work. Uh, th there is a bit of a paradox here. Oh, the machines do the work, so we don't have to work, and therefore we cannot eat the produce of the machines. Uh, I know you don't want to get existential, but I view crypto as directly addressing parts of that. 
well, let's give the, the smart ones the capacity to create their own money and their own value and, and create more abundance. And one of the things that makes me very optimistic, besides the state of tech, but I think the state of tech maybe has lost a little bit of its intent, both the, the bright and the dark intent. What I mean by dark is all the, 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 the punk, uh, uh, the, the, the hardcore libertarian, even anarchist components of open source. And I don't mean dark negatively. I mean it just, you know, the, the more deconstructive aspects of, of crypto. Also the, the very positive uh, aspects of, of, of sort of this, this, this new community-based innovation with crypto. And what I love in crypto is the energy. Uh, they're young, they're, they're excited, they meditate, they're, they're scared of the future, they're excited about the future. And it was the same energy I loved when I was a young guy and I wanted to do internet. And it was the same energy I loved in open source. And I find it in, in crypto. You know, the 30-year-olds, the millennials, they're, they're all about their meditation and their manifestations. And, their, and, and I like that. And that makes me optimistic because it's a, a certain mindfulness, a, a certain thoughtfulness uh, uh, that, that, that they take advantage. And so... I'm going to go existential for two seconds, but we're really witnessing the impact of the internet on our psyches, uh, away from the centralized media of 20th centuries, which begat a lot of abuses in propaganda in the first half, and then mindless consumerism in the second half. And I'm not criticizing the mindless consumerism. It's just that now you see a yearning for, for meaning, for almost a religious need a community need, uh, a, a, a sense of, of, of purpose and vision and belonging that people develop individually and at the same time in a group. Uh, and crypto certainly shows that in space. You know, when you ask a, a young one, what do you do? You know, well, you and my generation or our parents' generation, well, they would work for GE all their lives, and you and I, our generation, we're 50, you know, it would be, well, I work with this company now. And now it's, it's that but vaporized. The kids have five projects, and they're freelancing, and they're happy doing it. And, and that makes me optimistic. I think I'm fundamentally almost naively optimistic um, that, you know, maybe not us, but meaning you and I, but the next generation or the generation after will figure out this transition to this world of abundance without the existential angst of survival around abundance. And let me tell you, no animal has ever died next to a source of food and water. It will be the same for us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think crypto actually will play a big role in that post-nation state post-capitalist abundance sort of approach to things. What shape it takes, I have no idea. But we really are witnessing the, 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 the psychological impact of free information, free flow of information, open source communities on, on, on our society. And we're starting to see that the legacy institutions, not just nation state, but even World Bank, IMF, UN, they're, they're getting a little green around the gills. Um, you know, what are more modern fluid constructs that people can trust? Uh, it's not the IMF. Maybe it's the new China Silk Road. Anyway, everything's moving in a big way. I think the psyche of individuals is rapidly evolving with this Internet thing and this AI we call Google. You know, Kurzweil like to think the singularity is near. I think the singularity has happened. It's called the Internet. And what it's doing to our psyches, we live in angst. But if we focus and manifest what we want to manifest, it could be paradise. Hell, let's do those smart cities. Let's <laughs> do those green cities. You want to work in your 50,000 people village where you have several generations of people and it's not this mindless rat race where the kids are not looked after. You know, that's, that's a vision people want to wanna, wanna, you know, feel fuzzy about. And yeah. I like that. I like that. That makes me happy. No, there's 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 no question, and I and I think that 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 is what had excited so many of us about the opportunity to really rethink the the world again, and that was what we saw in the internet 
the first internet bubble, you really had people reimagining how every business could be uh, re- refactored, rethought, and it's it's the same sort of energy today. That uh, right. yeah, um, sure. yeah, and you combine it with some idealism and and some very smart technological people uh, applying their chops. Uh, That's magic. Yeah, a, a lot of things are going to fail, of course, and um, but it but it is interesting. I mean, as I I heard George Gilder at the uh, at Consensus say that uh, blockchain really solved two major problems. One was the issue of the the fundamental challenge of of the lack of security and trust on the internet based on the architecture, the open architecture of the internet. Uh, and the other is the problem of money, but that's of course another uh, an, another subject entirely. But we, you know, for the first time, you you have all of these forces coming together, and it it really is it it really is an exciting time to to be uh, to be exploring so many possibilities. <laughs> um, well, we're coming up on the uh, on, on the end of our uh, of our time here, but I always like to. To, to close out with a final question, which would be, uh, you know, any uh, a, any recommendations you might have for uh, for a book or a resource that you feel passionate about that you would uh, uh, the type of thing that you would give to somebody as a um, you know to uh, you know to help them see the world in a different way. Well, uh, two books that I I'm in the middle. I finished one and almost finished with the other. Um, the first one is an old one. It's, it's Jung's, uh, Carl Jung, uh, 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 Memories, um, and uh, the process of individuation, meaning how ideas get birthed and your psyche, you sort of have to deconstruct it, uh, to reconstruct it to the new circumstances, which is, you can see in the, in the world of crypto, the world of crypto is going through individuation, opposed to uh, uh, institution opposed to the existing corpus, opposed to the existing groups, uh, uh, and and in this strife and opposition, um, you have to define a new uh, reality. And uh, Jung went through this without the modern internet. Why not? This is more about psychology. Um, the second one that uh, I just finished reading is called The General Theory of Love, and it's really a psychology book by. Uh, psychoanalysts and neurosurgeons that is very well written it's a very erudite book very clear-minded very illuminated book and it's always a pleasure to sort of slip into somebody else's mind and and turn off your own for a while i always get pleasure out of that and and the general theory which you can find in most books today is that the brain is really three levels physically you have the reptilian brain a stem which controls the basic functions without you knowing. You have the neocortex, which is where we think and really what distinguishes our species in terms of speech and, and, and reasoning capabilities, mathematics and advanced thought. But in the middle exists this limbic brain, which we engage when we dream uh, subconsciously uh, or we engage subconsciously. And the theory is that emotions really emote, literally emote, electromagnetism-wise from the limbic brain. It's an electric quantum emitter. And the theory is that people naturally connect emotionally first through the limbic brain without words, um, mentally, psychically, and sort of align uh, through this intrinsic intent. And I found that very pretty, almost poetic, very romantic. The idea that the bond between a child and the mother is limbic. The bond between people is limbic. So that you and I first communicate subconsciously. And when that is in alignment, you attract what you like, you attract what likes you. And, and, and once the limbic connection, so the memes come from the limbic layer. They're sort of, they feel natural and, and second skin. And, and this meme propagation is a limbic uh, thing. So the book really went into, you know, very well researched, academic, medical, but also psychoanalytical practitioners away from Freud and Jung and, and all that old clique, almost, almost modern, saying it's the limbic system that is struggling right now, that is anguished, that, that in its dreams as nightmares. And it's really at the limbic level that we need to apply 
some 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 kindness so that the limbic connection can reawaken and we can connect intuitively to each other or as a group i don't mean everybody i don't mean earth peace and, you know, we may not have peace the the war machine is too 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 important in our in our psyches um, but but at least at the group level you know crypto certainly has that you have a strong mm-hmm. notion of community music is very strong with that absolutely yeah yeah i think i think you know those emotions play a very very big part there so uh general theory of love the name escapes me right now but that's the name we'll of we'll, we'll 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 find it and we'll link to it yeah. in, in, in the yeah. show notes but that's no that's fantastic and and i uh i i'm gonna pursue that there was there's actually a great book on um uh, negotiation written by Oren Claff uh, called Pitch Anything. And he, uh, that the first thing that he talks about is that when you are looking to sell something, he, his perspective was an investment banker working for a, for a small boutique shop pitching against, you know, big established, uh, you know, bulge bracket firms for, uh, you know, for, for financing deals. He said, you know, the, the, the key was that most people make their minds up in five seconds because of their limbic system. Mm-hmm. And with it, without going into the, the more the, the, you either, you know, you, you either flee or you are, or you want to, you want to, you want to eat it, you want to flee or you want to, um, or how should we say love, love it. Right. And, <laughs> and those are the, those are the reactions that, that come from your limbic system that are yes. innate. And right. you know, if you, if we understand those at least better, it can help us, uh, be much more effective in in articulating and advocating our you know and our passions and our ideas more broadly uh, you know across the world and and hopefully for good as well so um sure. anyway i I, th- I i think that's a terrific uh recommendation and um yeah thanks for for bringing that up well well listen we're, i think we've we've run to the uh to the end of the uh, of our time uh again this is uh this has been mark flurry who's a founder and uh technologist entrepreneur uh thinker philosopher uh it's we've covered so much ground in this uh, in this conversation it's really uh in, it's always a pleasure talking to you mark and and, and again, this, and this is uh, Ed McGuire Insights partner at Momenta with uh, another episode of our podcast. And and um, I'll I'll say once again, thank you so much, Mark, for your for your time. It's been it's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.